Our team at the Montana State News Bureau is back again at the Capitol following all the major action during the 90-day legislative session. From how Republicans navigate an historic supermajority to transformational decisions on spending billions in surplus and the fate of intense social bills. Listen here each week for everything you need to know about your state legislature. This is Big Sky Lead. Welcome back to Big Sky Lead. This is week seven of the current legislative session. Um, With me today is Sam Wilson and Tom Kuglin of the Montana State News Bureau. And on the agenda today will be... um, talk about a bill to um, legalize crossbow use during archery range, archery season. And um, Sam will discuss the redistricting process. Um, Tom, let's start with crossbows. This is kind of the second chapter in uh, Senator Brad Molnar's quest to legalize crossbow use. Can you tell me a little bit of the um, the history of this idea? Um, he's not the first person to bring it, um, but it has never been passed. Is that correct? Yeah, Tom, that's right. So what we have is a bill that would allow the use of crossbows by hunters with disabilities during our six-week archery season. Um, this has been a really controversial topic for a long time. I mean, dating back probably to the early 2000s is when we first started seeing this kind of push and this legislation has come periodically, but it, it's come repeatedly more recently. Um, like you said, Senator Molnar, he's a Republican from Laurel, brought this last session, um, and he's been highly involved in it because he um, believes he would qualify for this type of exemption, um, this type of special permit um, to use um, a crossbow during archery season. He says he has um, got injuries that won't allow him to draw a bow. Right. Um, and he has major concerns about um, the current exemptions, which allow for adaptive equipment. Okay. Um, he doesn't believe all those should, are safe enough to use at all times and don't necessarily fit every situation out there. Um, so like I said, this has been going back a long time, um, and it's been pretty specific to hunters with disabilities, um, but there is concern about, a, you know, more of a slippery slope, whether we would get more um, more crossbow use um, as people saw this available. Right. Well, can you can you kind of lay plain for folks who are maybe not in that, that world of uh, hunting regulation and, you know, um, you know, types of weapons? What, what is the what is the big deal with crossbows? Why aren't they considered archery equipment to begin with? Well, the the thing about crossbows is they shoot an arrow, which is called a bolt right. or a crossbow. Um, so you do have that similarity there to archery. However, um, most crossbows have a stock and you aim them similar to a rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, the bow lays down horizontally compared to where you're shooting it and you pull a trigger. Um, and there are devices you can use to help pull the pull a crossbow back, um, basically through winding it and then setting it. So in, in those ways, people that are opponents of this believe that crossbows are going to be sim- more similar to a firearm than, than you know, your classic bow and arrow. Right. Um, where that argument runs up against the opponent's argument, though, is you are seeing um, compound bows now that are so 
sophisticated. Um, and so, um, so mechanically advantaged that you can shoot, you know, some pretty long distances, um, with some of today's compound bows and shoot at really high speed. Um, it's a matter of debate, I think, about what is the safe distance to shoot with archery, whether it's um, a compound or recurve or longbow. Mm-hmm. Um, but the crossbows, um, you know, especially if you had a scope on them, which I believe this build wouldn't allow, um, you know, you'd be able to shoot you know, probably distances that you might not feel comfortable with a compound bow. Right. But again, there are people that shoot compound bows out to distances that most people wouldn't shoot. So. Right. Um, you know, you get into personal ethics there and stuff too, which is harder to legislate, certainly. Right, absolutely. Um, so the the big argument, though, is that we're excluding people. And Senator Molnar, who is, um, you know, very outspoken on a lot of issues, but this issue in particular, um, believes it's discriminatory against hunters with disabilities. Right. And um, is that is that like, is that his most passion, like passionate part of this whole thing? Yeah, absolutely. So we saw last session, um, Senator Molnar came to the hearing, not only with, you know, himself, but he brought hunters that, um, you you know, um, folks that are in wheelchairs, people that say they can't necessarily hunt with this adaptive equipment. They brought some crossbows too, if I remember right. Was that the session or was that the Fish and Wildlife Commission? It hmm. might have been the session. I'm oh, that, well, they both was the commission. They both happened in the same building, so that that's <laughs> maybe what's confusing me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the, this discussion has been had at the Fish and Wildlife right. Commission. It's been had in federal court. It's been had at the legislature. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, <laughs> Tom's right, though. It does sort of cross a lot of jurisdictional entities that could weigh in on this. So is there? Do we have any idea if this session's going to be any different for Molnar's? Uh, you know, attempt? So last session, it went further than I've seen it go before. It did clear the Senate. Right. Um, Molnar was very adamant that it should actually not be heard in a fishing game committee. Hmm. Um, Why is that? So he says it is purely a question of disability rights. So he actually was able to successfully, it passed the Senate through the fishing game committee, but he had it in in the house heard in the the house and uh, human services right uh, which deals more with like um department of health and human services those sorts of issues right um it was killed in that committee um and an attempt to bring it out was not successful so this was last session this was last session um but the fact that they clear the upper chamber um is might be an you know a, a indicative of you know some progress on pushing this through right so we do need to talk about the cons on it, though. Um, you have, you know, archer, archery groups that are really against this. And, you know, it, it's always a really hard hearing to go through because I don't think anybody wants to come in and, you know, be on the side of opposing adaptive equipment for hunters with disabilities or anyone with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now there is an exemption that allows adaptive equipment um, to be used at, most commonly, it's called a draw lock, um, but there are some other things. But the draw lock just holds the bow back for you once it's drawn. Right. So, you know, people with um, injuries or limitations can use that sort of device. And the Montana Bow Hunters Association has a program where they, um, you know, 
create these devices and adapt, you know, work with hunters to be able to use them. Mm-hmm. Um, the other big concern is we have a six week archery season where, you know, if you're a resident, all you have to do is pass bow hunter safety and you can hunt those six weeks. Um, the interesting thing about that though, is it crosses over the elk rut right. when, you know, bulls are more likely to be with cows and bugling and everything else. It's a special time of year to be out certainly right. and ups your probably chance of, of, you know, an encounter with a bull. Yeah. Those bulls are a little bit more proximity. susceptible to hunters. Easier to find anyway. Yeah. So, um, the, the concern though, is if the, the rate of success, which there's some debate about that, um, with crossbows, if the rate of success is considerably higher than it would be with equipment where you're going to be trying to draw it at close proximity to an animal that's, you know, very wary and will, you know, most likely leave the area if it catches any movement, mm-hmm. um, that the success rate will increase and that will diminish and maybe eventually sacrifice some of that six-week archery season. Right. Which we're already seeing a lot of pressure just in terms of more hunters and more people out on the landscape. Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's basically the concern and the argument against doing this. Okay. Um, you know, there certainly are, are varying archery exceptions or uses in other states. Um, so Montana's a bit unique in excluding it. Um, you can use crossbows, though, pretty liberally in other seasons. You can use them during the general season, um, you can use them for a variety of other game animals during their season, say turkey or black bear or um, in the spring or, you know, any other thing that would be legal at the, at the time where it's not specific to an archery permit. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that hearing is going to come up um, Thursday in Senate Fish and Game. And uh, we'll be there to check it out. And uh, we'll, we'll be tracking that one closely because it's always a pretty big passionate issue. Right. Thanks, Tom. Okay, Sam, um, let's let's hop over to a conversation on redistricting. Um, the redistricting committee has adopted new Senate and House district maps, and you were in the room for the process. Can you explain that for folks who weren't, you know, following along at home? Sure. Yeah. So um, Montana is a little bit different from a lot of states in that it has a uh, its constitution sets up an independent redistricting commission. Um, It's got five members, two Democrats, two Republicans and one nonpartisan chairperson. Um, So it kind of tends to set up a situation where you have both parties obviously advocating for maps and districts that would benefit, you know, their party as best as they can, but, you know, they have to sort of be able to justify a lot of the changes that they want to make to the maps um, in order to, in order to get the nonpartisan chart to to go along with Mm -hmm. them. Um, The goal here is, you know, of course, every 10 years, the U.S., the federal government comes out with the census um, with new population numbers, and they have to redraw 100 House districts and 50 Senate districts to align with those new numbers to basically balance them out again because, you know, you've got situations where places like Bozeman that have had, you know, kind of off the charts population growth um, have districts that are, you know, 60% overpopulated mm-hmm. um, compared with kind of what the ideal district would be. Um, so that uh, that process kicked off in earnest last August when, 
uh, commissioners um, from both the Republican and Democratic sides brought forth initial maps. And then over the last months, there's the last few months since then, there's kind of been this evolution where both sides are, you know, kind of negotiating, um, mostly in public, but also behind the scenes. Um, and it's, you know, this kind of consensus process is driven by the chair, Malin Smith, who um, is a professional mediator um, and an attorney who was selected by the Supreme Court to kind of oversee the process. Um, so that's been going on since August. Um, and then at the end of December, they finalized uh, a proposed House map and a proposed Senate map. Um, those went to the legislature in January. The legislature has sort of a non-binding role in the process where they're tasked with reviewing the maps, offering some recommendations, presumably the people that actually campaign in those districts and occupy those seats, you know, understand them pretty well and might have some common sense suggestions. That goes back to the commission. And then the commission can, you know, weigh those recommendations. They're not bound by any of them. Um, in this case, they did adopt... Uh, a number of recommendations that came with sort of bipartisan recommendations from the legislature. Um, and then this whole process, after many meetings and hours right. and days of negotiations, finally wrapped up on Friday. Right. Um, I'm sorry, on Saturday. And, um, and they finalized the House and Senate map, and now that's uh, on its way to the Secretary of State's office. And that'll be the map that, or the maps that are used for the, starting in the 2024 elections and then continuing on through uh, 2032. Okay. And this is, this is a done deal. The, the secretary of state's role in this is just kind of formal, like a uh, procedural. That's a good question. Um, actually it, it should be under normal circumstances. Um, back in 2000, there was actually a case where the map that was selected was, um, kind of like this one, uh, pretty roundly criticized by Republicans and the Republican secretary of state at the time, Bob Brown actually refused to accept the map. Um, and that set up a you know, kind of lengthy battle in the courts um, that ultimately resulted in um, the map staying the same and um, the courts forced the Secretary of State to accept the map and they went into effect as they'd been uh, finalized. Hmm. Okay, so can you unpack a little bit of the conflict that happened throughout this process? Yeah, so yeah, obviously, um, you know, there's going to be some strong differences of opinions between the Republicans and Democrats on the commission. Um, and that debate kind of basically, you know, there, there were a lot of moving parts to it. But one of the biggest differences was how they treated the cities, right? Because um, in Montana, like a lot of other states, um, the rural parts have increasingly become, you know, more polarized toward the Republican end of the spectrum. The urban areas have become more polarized to the Democratic part of the end of the spectrum. Um, and so really the, the urban areas and the areas immediately outside of those cities are where, you know, kind of a lot of those potential swing districts um, are set up. And depending on how you chop those up, you know, you can, you can get a lot of Democrats squeezed into one area, um, which is, you know, sometimes known as vote packing. Um, and, you know, it's kind of one way to potentially dilute the vote of Democrats. Um, Republicans argued that the Democrats were able to essentially splinter these Republic these uh, urban districts or these urban areas into districts that sort of reach out into the suburbs and, you know, even into the more rural areas, um, but have just enough Democratic votes in that kind of slice of the city to be able to outweigh the Republican votes that are, you know, 
more concentrated in, in the rural areas. Rural areas, right. Um, so yeah, one of the one of the big ones that uh, one of the big places we saw this um, was actually up in the Flathead, um, which currently, you know, is a Republican stronghold. Um, you know, it's got um, I think the second most, no, third most Republican votes of any county in the state, and it. Um, it does have one kind of island of blue. There's one Democratic representative from Whitefish um, in the House, but it doesn't have a single Democratic senator um, currently. And this, the proposal from the Democrats um, and the, the current map, as it was decided, would basically split the town of Whitefish, um, put about half of it into a district that goes all the way up to the Canadian border, um, and is Democratic leaning, and then would take the other half and put it in with Columbia Falls, you know, a smaller city that's you know pretty nearby, but all, obviously a separate city entirely. Um, Republicans argued that you know this was an attempt by the Democrats to basically um, you know what they call gerrymandering, kind of playing with the district lines to create as many Democratic seats as they could or potential Democratic seats as they could. And so there was no reason to split Whitefish. It's around 10,000 people, which is about what the ideal house district size is. You've got you know a little over a million people in Montana, 100 house seats. That comes out to you know a little over 10,000 people mm-hmm. per district. Um, but this is actually one of those areas of consensus. Um, when you go back and look at where the two parties kind of got to um, at a certain point, they had actually um, proposed maps that looked really similar in this area. Um, and the Republicans argue that it was a bait and switch, that essentially they were going along with the Democrats, thinking there'd be a compromise in another part of the map that never materialized. Um, at the end of the day, though, those were the two final maps put forth by both parties. Um, and the Democrats, as well as the chair, Malin Smith, have both kind of cited the similarities in that whitefish split um, as being an area of consensus and have resisted um, a lot of arguments and attempts from Republicans to, um, to take that out and basically make, you know, keep whitefish as one single district. Right. Uh, um, so y- you said this is a consensus process and you, it sounds like you're kind of working towards that. But can you tell me more about how consensus, what what happened in that front that led to the maps that we have today? Um, yeah, so I, I mentioned, um, you know, back in December, there was this decision that was made by, by the chair there. Um, you know, a lot of these really kind of pitched battles over the maps came down to three to two votes, right? Um, Democrats, Republicans, at the end of the day, you know, made some compromises, made some consensus, tried to show the chair that they're operating in good faith um, and, and coming towards some sort of middle. Um, but there were substantial differences, and they couldn't quite get there, and eventually the chair had to break a tie. Um, they had two maps from each side, and she selected the one drawn by the Democrats. Um, mm. and, and this comes after um, a similar process played out on the U.S. congressional map where Montana gained... Um, for the first time in 30 years, a second house seat. And mm-hmm. so they had to figure out how to draw that line to separate the two house districts in Montana. Um, she had sided, you know, two years ago with uh, Republicans on that. I'm sorry, one year ago with Republicans on that. It feels like two years. <laughs> um, and, um, and so 
that was that was a, a major tiebreaker that kind of set the stage for the map that we currently have. Um, but since then, I mean, there's been additional tweaks. I mentioned the legislative process, and also there's been work sessions where um, Republicans have brought forth amendments and they've held public hearings to kind of educate changes to the maps. Um, and and Smith has sided with Republicans probably on more of those proposals than not, um, and made a number of tweaks, including one uh, one pretty substantial one. Um, in Gallatin County around Belgrade that essentially reduced the number of, uh, of house seats that, um, that are kind of safely democratic under this, uh, under this new map. And I guess I should mention that's, that's another kind of major thing here. So Republicans currently have a supermajority under the current maps. Um, they are likely to not be able to reclaim a supermajority in at least the next couple of years under the map that they have. Hmm. Um, the maps actually did a pretty good job. Um, the, the competitiveness criteria that they used to evaluate these maps did a pretty good job of predicting what the outcome of the, uh, the most recent legislative races were going to be. Um, and actually, kind of through the system of determining, you know, that the commission is using to determine whether these districts lean Republican or Democrat or safely Democratic or safely Republican, um, using that kind of metric, um, they predicted all but one of the legislative seats, how they would turn out wow. in the election, which is, yeah, I think um, I think it was 132 out of 133, which is pretty good. And so these legislative districts will be on the next ballot, correct? Yep. Okay. Or, well, the next election. Yeah. Right, right. The next, the next legislative election. And now... Are there any other political districts left for the redistricting committee to draw out, or are no. they are they done? Their their work is done. Um, yeah, and uh, they the members of that commission are definitely not looking to to continue the process at this point. They they all seem pretty relieved to finally be at an end point on Saturday. I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, one of them, uh, Dan Stusick, one of the Republican commissioners, even said that you know he he definitely won't be back in ten years when you know a new <laughs> redistricting commission um, gets created to to do this all over again. He said uh, his his marriage probably wouldn't survive it. Oh no, um, it's it's a lot of work. I mean, they they put in a lot of hours. They don't get paid very well, um, right? You know, and I mean, they're you know they're really you know, putting in a lot of work and it's a pretty thankless job and, mm -hmm. and long hours and tough negotiations to get to where they are at. Um, though there could be a coda to this. Um, the Republicans have threatened to sue over the maps. Um, and like I said, there's some history of a Republican Secretary of State just refusing to accept the maps. Wow. Um, so, we'll, you know, we'll kind of have to stay tuned to how that plays out. Um, it's possible, you know, we could be seeing litigation and, um, the commission's work will be done, but, um, you know, whether this is the map that actually goes into effect, um, you know, Democrat or the Republicans have suggested they, they want to challenge that. Right. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, political districts for the next 10 years are drawn, but certainly not set in stone quite yet, according to Sam. Um, thanks, guys. Thanks, Yeah, thank you.